0: Um, We're going to start with prayer, and we're going to get right into the text of Scripture. We've got a great, great message in store for you today, because today is a big day for us. We're transitioning into our third chapter. Today we begin a nine-part series on the Exodus, and we'll be talking about Moses. So let's begin with prayer. Father in heaven, awesome to be here this morning, and my prayer is that your Spirit will be with us and in us. Father, we are living in the midst of an ongoing exodus where you are calling your people out. Father, we just saw those dear ones that were up front here that are making the decision for baptism today. Father, you have called them out of darkness into marvelous light. And Father, you are in a continual state of calling us out of the bondage of sin, out of the bondage of Egypt, out of the bondage of the world, into the light, into the glory, into the freedom that you have for us. And so today, Father, as we begin this... This chapter, this nine-part chapter on Exodus, as we talk about Moses, Father, my prayer is that you will help us to see, as we've been emphasizing again and again, not dissimilarity between us and these Bible characters, but a fundamental similarity, an ordinariness, a commonality between us and them. Be with us now as we open the text of Scripture as our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen. Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to the book of Genesis, last book, or excuse me, the first book, last chapter of that book. Join me in Genesis chapter 50. Now our sermon today is going to come from Exodus chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. That gets us right up to Pharaoh. And as we mentioned, we'll have Pastor Justin Lawman with us, the Pharaoh, if you will, of the North New South Wales Conference. I'm sure he would appreciate me referring to him that way. Um... <laughs> taking us from Exodus chapter 5 and onwards, So today we're going to spend time in the first four chapters of Exodus. And as I've been studying over the course of the last several weeks, getting ready for this sermon, there were several sermons that I could have preached. And I thought, because I don't get a chance to preach them all, I'll just share with you what they could have been. These are some of the great themes in the opening chapters of the Exodus. First of all, there's God's blessing and Israel's prosperity as the number of the descendants of Jacob are rapidly multiplying. We could talk about the Israelite midwives' obedience when the command came from Pharaoh to take all of the the young boys and throw them into the river. But they said, nope, nope, we're not going to obey Pharaoh, we're going to obey God. We could talk about Jochebed, that's Moses' mother, and her faithfulness. We will mention a little bit about that today, but she was faithful. She refused to capitulate to the command of the Pharaoh. We could talk about Moses' flight and exile from Egypt. That could be a whole sermon in itself. And that's going to inform a little bit about what we talk talk about today. And we also will spend a little bit of time talking about Moses, the humbled shepherd. And so those are the sermons that we could have had. And uh, the sermon that we are going to have is titled, What is your hand holding and what is your home hiding? What is your hand holding and what is your home hiding? We're in Genesis chapter 50. And someone has remarked, quite accurately, someone has observed that the book of Genesis opens in the expansive cosmos. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we have been working our way methodically through the beginning, through the family. We are now through the book of Genesis. We're moving into the book of Exodus. And what we've basically been introduced to in the family, which was our second chapter, These are the major players, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Leah and Rachel, and finally Joseph, right? But as we come down to Joseph, what we discover is that Genesis opens in the expansive cosmos and closes in an Egyptian coffin. Look at Genesis chapter 50, verse 24. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land that he promised on an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, then you must carry my bones up out of this place. And then the final verse of the book of Genesis, So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. So Genesis opens expansively. It opens with the majestic cosmos, and it ends in a miserable Egyptian coffin where seemingly the plan of God, the purpose of God, the covenants of God has been thwarted. I mean, the whole book just sort of winds up in this terrible place, and and you have this plaintive cry, this this plaintive cry from Joseph, please, when I die, don't leave my bones in this country. Don't leave my bones in this foreign land you take an oath right now that you will carry my bones up out of Egypt. And so that introduces us to the book of Exodus. And in Exodus we open with chapter 1 verse 1. Exodus chapter 1 verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. And that's exactly what we've been talking about. That's our second chapter in our series. Seven chapters in our series through the Old Testament this year. A full year-long study through the Old Testament. We started in the beginning, which was Genesis 1 to 11. Then we've gone to the family, which is Genesis 12 to 50. And now we transition to the Exodus. These are those that came out with his family. Verse 2, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Verse 6, now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful, they multiplied greatly, they increased in numbers, and they became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Now if you're paying attention, just a little bit of attention, you would have noted that in the opening seven verses of Exodus, we are introduced to the two major elements of the covenant promise. Let's see if anyone remembers that. God appears to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, and God makes Abraham a promise, a covenant, and that covenant revolves around two basic ideas. Does anybody remember what they are? God promises to give them land, and He promises to give them descendants to fill it. So if you look there in Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, we're introduced to land and descendants. Land and descendants. Land and descendants. And this becomes the centerpiece, not only of Genesis, not only of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, not only of the Old Testament, the centerpiece of all of Scripture is the Abrahamic covenant. This promise that God made to Abraham to give him descendants and to give him land, land to put those descendants in. Look at this. God had promised both the land and the descendants to fill it. The same promise that He'd made to Adam back in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. The same promise that he'd made to Noah. Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply, he said to both of them. Exodus opens with many descendants, but with no land of their own. And right here is where we find the significance of that plaintiff plea, that plaintiff cry from Joseph. Please, promise, take an oath. You will not leave my bones in this foreign land. Joseph knew that this could not have been the fulfillment. He would have seen that that he himself was one of 12 and that they began to have children and even perhaps their children's children, it speaks there at the end of Genesis chapter 50. Joseph could see that the descendants part of the promise was being rapidly fulfilled in a way that Abraham himself had never seen, Isaac had not seen, Jacob had not seen. The promise is being fulfilled, but there's a problem. Though the descendants are multiplying, there's no land as yet. And so Joseph makes the He implores, he makes the plea, when you come out of this place, I know I'm in a coffin and very soon will be dead, but don't leave my bones because this is not our land. This is the land of the Egyptians. And it's right here that we are introduced to Moses. Now a remarkable thing happens in Exodus chapters 1 and 2. As the Israelites begin to multiply and God is blessing them and prosperity is coming to them, The Bible says that the Pharaoh that knew who Joseph was died. So not only did Joseph die, but the Pharaoh that knew Joseph also died. And all of the blessings and the salvation that Jared talked about the last two weeks that he had brought to Egypt was soon forgotten, right? And all of a sudden, you have all of these people that are camped right in your own territory. They're your neighbors. They're living in your backyard, the descendants of Jacob. And because they were multiplying so rapidly, I mean, if Jacob was any indication, he had 12 descendants, 12 uh, 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 sons, and then he also had uh, at least one daughter, if Jacob is any kind of indication, if you have that number of people having that amount of children, they're going to multiply very, very quickly, and the new Pharaoh sort of sits up, takes notice and says, whoa, what's going on here? These people are multiplying so greatly so that if our enemies ever came and could enlist them, could conscript them against us, we would be in danger. And so Pharaoh takes extreme measures, and in these extreme measures, he he requests the midwives. He actually commands the midwives, the, the Israelite midwives, to kill the children. Not all of them, but the males, right? To take these males, and if she sees when the when the midwife is on the birth stool, or when the uh, mother's on the birth stool, and the midwife sees the child, if if it's a boy, she says slay the boy, and if it's a it's a girl, then the girl can live. But the midwives don't capitulate to this. They don't go along with it, and when Moses, or excuse me, Pharaoh pulls them up and says, hey, you know, what, you're not doing a job. You're not doing what I told you to do. This, oh man, these, these Israelite women, they're not like the Egyptians. They have babies just like that. You know, the Egyptians, you have to go in there, you have to massage them, you have to take care of them, you have to, you know, be real precious with them. But the Israelites, man, by the time we show up, the baby's already done and dusted. It's already out. So we can't do what you've asked us to do. And in the course of this situation, Moses, or Pharaoh rather than, says, okay, well after they're born you take the males and you throw them in the river the females are allowed to survive but you throw the males in the river this is clearly a satanic attack this is a demonic satanic attack against god god's covenant promise the covenant promise revolves around not only the land but the descendants to fill it and here satan himself can see as god's great adversary that the The promise is being fulfilled, that the covenant is going to come to fruition, and so he seeks to bring that covenant to a stop. He seeks to arrest the fulfillment of God's promise by killing the children, the males in particular. Well, the the remarkable thing is, is that this is the very thing that actually plays into the hands of God. Notice this. From the book Patriarchs and Prophets, it says, Satan had been defeated in his purpose, the very decree condemning the Hebrew children to death had been overruled by God for the training and education of the future leader of his people. What had happened was Moses mother, Jochebed, could not imagine killing her own son as any mother would, would, would be unable to do. And so what she did, scripture says, is she made a little, a little ark, a little boat of reeds and she put it with pitch and then she laid her son when he was about three months old into those into those reeds and then put him in a little boat in uh, just in the side of the river and uh, then Miriam Moses sister sort of stayed by to see what would happen and sure enough as providence would open the door Pharaoh's daughter comes down and sees this child here's this little whimpering here's this little crying goes down and at a glance she reads the scene she can see the heart of the mother. She can see the care and attention to which she had put into the, into the little craft that she had made to float her child in. And, and the Bible says that Moses was a beautiful child. And so in a moment, she, 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 she says, you know what, I'm going to keep this child. She herself, even though it wasn't her own child, couldn't imagine killing this beautiful boy. And at just that moment when Miriam sees that, that an interest has been taken in her younger brother, she races over and says, hey, look, would you like me to find a nurse And she says, yes, by all means. And that was a really powerful thing because the the story goes on to say that Moses was allowed to stay with his mother, not just for the period of weaning, but all the way up until about the age of 12. So now Moses was being raised, he was being taught, he he was in the very presence and under the influence of his parents when, if Satan's plan had prevailed, he would have been killed and thrown into the river. But here's where the remarkable thing happens. Not only did Moses have the opportunity in the first formative years of his life, the first 12 years, to be under the influence and tutelage of his mother and father, but now he then got to transition, and I love this verse here in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 7, verses 20 and 22, speaking of Stephen's sermon that he preached there, it says, Moses was born and he was no ordinary child. We're talking today about ordinary and extraordinary people. He was no ordinary child. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. Now, we're not given a lot of information about Moses' actual rearing in the house of Pharaoh, but at one point, that mother, that caring, kind, compassionate mother would have had to take her child, her her preteen child, and deliver him to the Pharaoh's house. He would then be raised over the course of the next 28 years in the house of Pharaoh. And this is what Stephen is talking about here. In all of the wisdom and in all of the education of the Egyptians, he became became knowledgeable. He became wise. And so when we're introduced to Moses in chapter 3, actually toward the end of chapter 2, Moses is a 40-year-old man. Let's pick it up in verse 11. Here's Moses, 40 years old. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and he watched them at their hard labor. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. The next day he went out and he saw two Hebrews fighting. And he said to the one in the wrong, "'Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew?' The man said, who made you a ruler or a judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and he thought, what I did must have become known. Now this is interesting. The very first act that we are introduced to by this ordinary, extraordinary man of God is that he kills somebody. Right? This is is a very consistent theme in the way that Moses tells the various stories of the first five books of Scripture, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We're introduced to somebody and then they're not lauded as being great and awesome and always doing the right thing. We talked about Abraham, for example, several weeks ago where God makes a covenant with Abraham and the first action that Moses records him as performing in the wake of the covenant was he lied about the precise nature of his relationship to Sarah. Shortly thereafter, when the covenant seems to delay in its fulfillment, what's the next thing? He takes Hagar. So we're introduced to God's men. God's extraordinary men and women, not as always making every right decision, not as always, hey, they did everything right, first time, every time. No. The first action that we're introduced to by Moses, the man of God, is that he takes matters into his own hands in a most extreme way and slays an Egyptian. The Moses that we're introduced to in Exodus chapter 2 is clearly a self-sufficient Moses. This is a Moses who is brilliant. He, he knows he's a Hebrew, but he also know, he's been educated with the Egyptians. There's a sense of pride. There's a sense of calling. There's a sense of destiny. There's a sense that he will, he will lead his people out of Egypt. And he's going to do so with his own might, with his own strength, and with his own power. Well, it says in verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses... So Moses' plan was thwarted, and he fled from Pharaoh, and he went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs with their uh, father's flock. Some shepherds came along, I'm in verse 17, and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. Okay, let's just take stock. Moses has now done three things in Exodus chapter 2, and every one of them involves him basically flexing his muscle. This is a manly man. This is a dude who likes to solve problems with his fists. He likes to solve problems with his muscles. He likes to get in there and get it done. He sees, you know, this Egyptian guy, boom, punches him out. He's dead. He oversees an argument that's taking place here. He immediately insinuates himself into the conversation, and he's going to sort it out. Hey, you did what was wrong. What's going on here? That's the first two scenes. The next scene is even as he's fleeing from Pharaoh, he comes to the the well there and some daughters of uh, one of the priests of Midian come up and uh, some shepherds come up to try to shoo these girls away and Moses insinuates himself into this situation and basically shoves the shepherds away. Again and again, we're introduced to a guy who's tough. You might say rough as guts right here in Australia, right? This guy's tough. He solves problems with his fist. He solves problems with his muscles. He gets things done. This is the very self-sufficiency. This is the very pride. This is the very character. This is the very attitude that God is going to have to take out of Moses. If Moses will ever be used to fulfill his destiny in leading the children of Israel out of Egypt, it won't be by his might, by his fists, by his strength, by his, you know, masculinity. It's going to take years, and not two, not ten, not five 40 years to get Moses to the place where he will see, in fact, that it's not all about him. It's not all about his strength and his might. It's about God. Jump down to verse 23. During this long period, Moses has now gone to meet Zipporah, who is one of the daughters of um, Ruel, the priest of Midian. And it says, verse 23, during that long period, again, not a few years, It took him 40 years to learn it. It's going to take him 40 years to unlearn it. The king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their help, they cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. Verse 24, this is a key verse. And if you're in the habit of marking in your Bible, you will definitely want to mark something here. Verse 24 says, God heard their groaning and he remembered his what? He remembered his covenant. And watch this. A covenant with who? With Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and he was concerned about them. Moses is clearly writing to build the point, right? He's gone through the story of Genesis. He's gone through the family saga of Exodus, or Genesis rather, and he's arrived now in Exodus. But Moses, if we have forgotten the great theme of Scripture, Moses has not forgotten it. It revolves around the great covenant promise that God made to Abraham and his descendants. A promise of land and a promise of descendants. And here as the children of, of Israel, the descendants of Jacob, are languishing under the heavy burden of Pharaoh who insists that they make bricks and then later bricks without straw, God hears the plaintive cries of his people and as he hears those cries it says, ah, he remembered his covenant, his arrangement His promise with the descendants of Abraham. We are then introduced to Exodus chapter 3, and Moses flows through this so quickly. I mean, we spent 40 years in Pharaoh's house, or 28 years in Pharaoh's house, 12 years in his mother's house. We, it basically covered in half a chapter. And then we just spent 40 years in the desert, in the wilderness, wandering around as a shepherd. It's covered in a chapter, so now we get to Exodus chapter 3, and Moses is 80, and we're only two chapters in. Right? He's not a young man. We're just two chapters into this thing. And what emerges now becomes really, really fascinating. The picture of Moses that comes out here is that Moses, Mary Zipporah, has a son. His, son's first, the, his first son's name is Gershom. Names him Gershom. What a strange name seemingly to us. Gershom. But the name literally means stranger. Because Moses was a stranger in a strange land. But that's the story of Israel. The story of Israel is they are, they are strangers in a strange land. And friends, that's our story. We are strangers in a strange land. We're in a place that, that isn't quite right. It doesn't feel quite like home. We see the news and we think, man, surely this can't be the way the world was supposed to be. And we hear terrible stories or we visit a hospital and we think, no, this, this can't be right. This can't be God's intention. Well, that was Moses' experience. Here he is, exiled in the land of Midian. And he must be, he must have been thinking to himself: surely this this is not my destiny. This isn't what I was called for. So too Israel. Here they believed they were the chosen people of God, they were the appointed people of God, they were the ordained people of God, but they're stuck as slaves in a foreign land. This is the story again and again and again in Scripture. Strangers in a strange land, stuck in a place that you know is not your home. Now, this is where we're introduced to the great story of the burning bush. Let's pick it up in verse 1 of Exodus 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it didn't burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. Moses was familiar with the desert. He was familiar with its flora and its fauna. He had seen many extraordinary things, no doubt, but nothing quite like this. A bush that's burning that is not being consumed. And so as any of us would, he goes over to investigate. And as he makes his way up to the bush to investigate this curious sight, it says, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush and said, Moses, Moses. Eighty years into his life. Two short chapters, but 80 long years. Twelve years with his mother, 28 years in the house of Pharaoh, and then 40 years wandering around the deserts and plains and wilderness of Midian. Moses, Moses, God calls to him. Now notice that it says, first of all, that the angel of the Lord appeared in the burning bush. And then it says it was God that called to him. This is a key interpretive principle in Scripture, and I'll just spend a brief moment on it. Again and again in the Old Testament, we're introduced to this character, this figure called the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord did so and so. The angel of the Lord did so and so. The angel of the Lord. And in most instances, listen to me carefully, the angel of the Lord is none other than God himself. Disabuse your mind of this idea that an angel, you know, is this winged creature robed in white. The word angel means messenger. And the specific angel, the specific messenger of the Lord that's being spoken of here, that's in the burning bush that is not consumed, is none other than Jesus himself. So here is this meeting between Moses and Jesus, and Jesus calls out to Moses, 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 and this is where the plot really thickens. So Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, notice the first thing after he's got Moses' attention, first thing that he says, I am the God of your father. Say it with me. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. You see, friends, we might forget how to read Scripture. We might forget what the great story is, but the Bible writers never forget what the great story is. The great story always has been and always will be that the God of, of the universe, the God of infinity, the God of holiness has made a promise. He's made an arrangement. He's made an agreement. He's made a covenant with a guy named Abraham and with his descendants. What a marvelous condescension. too! in fact, that we see in these short verses. Number one, That God would condescend to come down and speak to human beings at all. That is already a remarkable condescension. But number two, that God would be so humble, so condescending, so as to refer to himself, to identify himself with people, with humans. I am the God of David and of Mark and of Rebecca. I am the God of Michael. I am the God of Jamin. I am the God of Roz and of Kathy and of David. What a remarkable thing. God here identifies himself with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And we've already spent enough time in Scripture to know that these were not spotless figures that always did everything right. And yet God's condescension in identifying himself with these people gives us an insight into the kind of God that he is. What a perfect, perfect, perfect illustration. A humble, simple, nondescript bush, but that is filled, that is consumed with a fiery, incandescent flame, but in which the bush is not consumed. It's not burning up. It's not smoking. The bush burns, but it remains there. And this is a picture, a little symbol, a foreshadowing of Jesus himself. Jesus who would come not as a humble, simple, nondescript bush, but as a humble, simple, nondescript person. And the glory of God would be wrapped in that person. The glory, as Scripture says in the Old Testament, for in Christ all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, everything that God is was wrapped in that little, whatever he was, six foot tall, 80 kilogram person, but it wasn't consumed. And here Moses, he thinks he's just approaching an ordinary bush. Ah, there's something extraordinary about this bush. It is filled with the incandescent and fiery presence of God himself. And as he approaches, God says, don't come too close. You're standing in a holy place now. Take your shoes off. I am the God of your fathers. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Verse 7, the Lord said, indeed, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land. And here we're introduced to, a, to an Old Testament metaphor that will be used again and again. A little picture. A land flowing with milk and honey. Ah, what does that mean? Right? A land flowing with milk and honey. Well, of course... In order to get milk, you have to have grass. It has to be a fertile land. There has to be grass. There has to be places you can put cattle. And so it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful land. It's a green land. And in order to get honey, you have to have flowers. You have to have, you have to have trees. You have to have bees. In other words, this is a way of saying this is a beautiful, productive, green, luscious land. A land flowing with milk and honey. The home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has reached to me, and I've seen the way that the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Here we see the covenant promise coming together. Here's the descendants, the descendants of Jacob that are prospering and multiplying in Egypt. And God says, now I'm going to put them in the land. That's where we're going to be headed, by the way. Right, that's our fourth chapter. Beginning, family, exodus, lands. The covenant promise is coming together slowly. God has his descendants who are multiplying every day. And then now he says, Moses, I need you to go get my people and put them in the land so this great Abrahamic covenant can become uh, fulfilled, that it can come to fruition. Ah, you're my guy. Now, if you would have approached Moses 40 years before, he would have said, you better believe it. I'm the guy. I got the biceps and I got the intellect." Moses is introduced to us, and remember, Moses is writing Exodus. He's telling his own story under the inspiration of the Spirit. And the first three pictures that we're introduced to in Moses, he's got his dukes up in each one. Right? The first thing we see him, boom, punching out an Egyptian. The next thing we see him is trying to break up a fight. The next thing we see him is chasing off a bunch of shepherds who are being unkind to the women that had come to water their flocks. This is a guy who knows how to get things done. He's confident. He's a man. He's a dude's dude. He's a man's man. If he was the kind of guy that went to pubs, he'd be one of the first ones to get in the thick of it. All right? Start busting chops. But watch what happens now. God says to Moses, You're the guy. You're the one. Forty years later, but Moses said to God, Who am I? This is a totally different Moses. It's only two chapters, but it's 80 years This is not the Moses that smote the Egyptian. This is not the same Moses that chased those shepherds off. This is not the same Moses that was insinuating himself into a matter that wasn't his. This is a meek, humble, demure, retiring Moses. This is a Moses who's learned to live and let live. This is a Moses who has learned in the big picture of the wilderness... Taking care of those sheep and, and day after day and the simple and subtle ways of wilderness living, he has learned a totally different way of life. Not a life that you take by the horns and you make happen what you're going to... No, no, a life that you just get... You go along with it. The sheep go this way, you go with the sheep. Yes, you guide. Yes, you steer. But not with a strong arm, not with a... Mu- no, you have, to, to be a shepherd is a subtle, subtle art... Right? You have to steer and you have to, you have to guide the sheep, but you don't drive the sheep. If you drive, drive, drive the sheep, you can actually kill them. And Moses, 40 years, four long decades, that's basically as long as I've been alive, he learns a whole new way of viewing reality, a whole new way of viewing life. And so when God appears to this Moses and he says, Moses, you're my man. He says, who am I? <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. I'm not your guy. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And then God gives the great assurance, the assurance that every one of us needs, this simple promise, I will be with you. Can the church say amen? Amen. Man, I'm telling you guys something. If God calls you to do something and you might feel underqualified, you might feel incapable, you might not feel up to the task, but if those words are true, I will be with you, you and God make a majority. There is nothing that you and God cannot do. We're going to see this here in just a bit. I will be with you. This will be the sign that it is I who has sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, but but, but, but suppose that I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they will ask me, what is his name? And then I will tell, what will I tell them? And he said, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am, has sent you. Now, this is a remarkable thing. There's a lot of discussion about the name of God. We encounter this, this word over and over again in the Old Testament Lord. Lord. And often in the Old Testament, when you encounter the word Lord, it's capitalized. Not just the capital L, but the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Right? Four capitals. And the reason for that is, is that the translators are alerting you to the fact that this is an unpronounceable, unknowable name. It's actually the proper name of God. The the Tetragrammaton is what it's called. just means the four letters, Tetra-4-grammaton letters. The Tetragrammaton, and and that Tetragrammaton is actually the name of God, but the problem is, is that the name is devoid of what we would consider to be vowelings. And so the name is just in, in the English equivalent, it's just Y-H-W-H. I am Y-H-W-H. And there have been a lot of conjecture and, and guesses as to what the vowelings might be, how that sacred, solemn name of God might be pronounced. Some have suggested, oh, it's Yehovah. Right? inserting three vowels into the YHWH. The y- Others have said, no, it's Yahweh, or even Yahweh. Some uh, older uh, uh, r- rabbinical tradition says that the reason that there were no proper vowelings is that it wasn't a name that could even be pronounced. It was the sound of breath. Yeah. ho, va, ho. That it wasn't a name that you could just say like David or Mark or, or Mindy. It was a different kind of name. It was the very breath, yeah, ha, ah, oh, ah. the breath of God. Now, there's a remarkable little bit in this that the, the, the verb, the Hebrew verb to be, to exist, is the verb haya. Sounds like a karate chop. Haya, right? And many scholars have suggested, and I believe correctly, that, that that verb, hayah, to be, to exist, is actually the very name of God. It's wrapped up with the name of God. Yahweh, hayah. So when Moses protests and says, well, I, I'm not your guy, I mean, who will I say sent me? And God says, these immortal words, verse 14, I am who I am. I am, hayah. I am that I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. God said to Moses, you say to the Israelites, the God of your fathers, and here it is again, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. I am that I am. Not the God who was. Not only the God who will be, but the God who is Present tense, I am, ha-ya, yeh, ho, la, ho. The tetragrammaton. And the Bible translators don't know exactly how to render that. So in your Bible, over and over again, it just says capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That lets you know that is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the one. Now this interaction sort of continues. It's quite fascinating. Jump down to verse 17. I have promised to bring you out of your misery in Egypt, into the land of the Canaanites. There it is. The descendants and the land coming together in the great consummation of the Abrahamic promise land and descendants to fill it. A land flowing with milk and honey. Jump down to chapter 4. Moses answered and said, But what if they don't believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord didn't appear to you? Notice, the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Yahweh didn't appear to you. Jehovah didn't appear to you. Then the Lord said to him, What is in your hand? I want to tell you today, church, that the bush is still burning. The bush is still burning. There are still opportunities to encounter the transcendent God in the most ordinary of places. This was an ordinary bush, nondescript, regular old, ordinary bush, and yet there was God embodied and, and, and contained in all of his grandeur and glory incandescently in that bush. The bush is still burning. Every time you look at another human being, you are looking at a burning bush. You are looking at the glory of God wrapped in somebody but not consuming them. Every time you see a beautiful sunset, you are standing at a burning bush. Every time you hear a song that just lights you up in a way that only that song does, you are standing in front of a burning bush. Every time you eat something that tastes so good to yourself, you think, what did I ever do to deserve a meal like this? Just this week, I went over to the Nylons place. And I tell you, man, Jane can cook. If this woman ever invites you over, you say yes. Cancel all plans. Get there. She served this thing I'd never had before in my life. It was called lemon potatoes. And it wasn't, just like, it wasn't just like potatoes boiled with a little lemon squeezed on top. This is a whole nother level of potato and lemon. And it was just epic. And I'm sitting there eating this food, and I now understand why Trevor is the man that he is, <laughs> if you know what I mean. I'm sitting there eating this, and I'm thinking to myself, what did I do to deserve this? every time you eat a morsel of food, every time you look at your child, every time you see a sunset or hear that song, every time you have one of those those aha experiences, you are standing in front of a burning bush. You're on holy ground. That ground was no less or no more holy than moments before or moments after. It had always been holy, but Moses had failed to recognize it. And here, as God appears to Moses, he said, whoa! Whoa! The bush yet burns. And then God says a remarkable thing here. God says a remarkable thing. What is that in your hand? What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. Which is exactly the answer you would expect a shepherd to give. A staff is to a shepherd like a hammer is to a builder like a stethoscope is to a doctor and like a child is to a mother. You say to a mother, what is that in your hand? That's my child. You say to a builder, what is that in your hand? That's my hammer. You say to a writer, what is that in your hand? That's my typewriter or my computer, my word processor. You say to a teenager, what is that in your hand? Say, that's my games, man. Come on. What is in your hand? For Moses, this staff represented his life and his livelihood. I'm a shepherd, God. This is my staff. This is my tool. This is my hammer. This is my stethoscope. This is what I do. I want to tell you something today. God is asking you the very same question. What's in your hand? It might feel like a very ordinary thing. Look at this. The Lord said, throw it down. Throw it down. Throw it on the ground. Oh, there is so much significance here. When God calls us, he calls us, as Jesus said, to take up your cross and to follow me. In the words, the immortal words of the the martyred German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. What's in your hand? Ah, there's a staff in my hand. Get rid of it. What's in your hand? Oh, there's a stethoscope in my hand. Get rid of it. What's in your hand? There's, there's a shovel in my hand. Get rid of it. What's in your hand? There's a textbook in my hand. Throw it down. Throw it down. Luke 17, verse 33. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will preserve it. There's a remarkable little thing that's going on here. When Moses casts his staff down, it's a symbol that he is giving up that life. He's, he's saying, God, whatever I am, I am yours. Notice he doesn't, he doesn't say, well, well, I need my staff. There's no protesting. When God says, give it up, you just give it up. Throw it down. He just instinctively, instinctually throws it down. Friends, I want to tell you something. Your life is not truly yours until you return it to him who gave it to you in the first place. Did you get that? Your life doesn't belong to you. And the the remarkable paradox of Christianity is that you don't get your life until you give it away. Many people are living what they think is their own life, but they're actually living a slavery to to their passions, a slavery to this world, and a slavery to Satan. The only way to be the person that God has called you to be, the only way to live the life that God has called you to live, is to give up your life. But watch what happens He says, throw it down. And then Moses, uh, God says the most remarkable thing to him, when Moses threw it down to the ground, it became a snake, and he ran from it. Now, this is a fascinating little insight, because Moses was a man who knew, as I've said, the flora and fauna. He would have known the animals. He would have known the snakes. He's been 40 years wandering around this place. And if it was a common snake, if it was an ordinary snake, if it was a snake, like a, a simple tree snake, he wouldn't run from that. The fact that he runs from it alerts you to the fact that it was a poisonous snake. It was a venomous snake. It was a dangerous snake. And Moses, with all of his years in the wilderness, would have immediately identified exactly what kind of a snake that it was. It was a dangerous snake. And then God makes the most unusual request. He says, reach out your hand and pick it up, which Moses probably would have had to do in other times. He would have had to dispose of snakes or dispatch snakes. But God says a remarkable thing. Pick it up by the tail. And most of us who have spent any time sort of fiddling with snakes... You know that when you go to pick a snake up, where do you pick it up by? You pick it up by the head. You get a stick or something and you, you trap it to the ground and then you work that stick up until you can maybe even get your foot on it. And then you pick that snake up by the head because if you have the head, it can't get you. But picking a snake up by the tail is a recipe for death. It's a recipe for getting bit. It's, it's not the way that you would pick up a snake. So when God says, throw your staff down, get rid of your life, he gets rid of it. And then he says, it turns into a snake. And Moses, sees, whoa, whoa, that's a dangerous snake. And God says, no, 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 you pick that thing up. Moses is like, uh, all right, I've dealt with these before. I'll do it. And he probably goes to, to try and pick it up. And God says, no, 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 by the tail. Your life is mine, Moses. Your life is in my hand. Do you trust me with your life? I want to tell you today, do you trust God with your life? What's in your hand? What is in your hand, throw it down. And when you take it back up, it's not yours any longer, it's yours and God's. When Moses protested and said, who shall I say sent me? He said, I will be with you. If God is with you, you can pick the snake up by the tail. If God is with you, you can cast your life down and you can take it back up because it's never really yours until you've given it away. Your life is not truly yours. Now look at this. I want to close by showing you this. Weirdest part of Genesis 1 to, of Exodus 1-4 to 4, by far is this strange story just in the middle of, just, it just shows up. Three very weird verses. Go to verse 24. I don't know what these verses are doing there. We're going to take a look at them. Just show up. Actually, I do know what they're doing there and I'm going to tell you all about it. Verse 24 at a lodging place, on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. And yes, you read that right. What a weird thing. Moses finally capitulates. He agrees to go. He says, okay, I'll go, God. He goes with some reluctance. He's going with his brother Aaron. And on the journey, Moses says that God appeared to him in a posture of a threatening posture, one in which, I mean, it just, I, I, don't know, I don't know how else to say it. Moses was about to be killed. God is about ready to kill his messenger. That's what it says. About to kill him. What is going on here? Verse 25. But Zipporah, that's his wife, she is not fully Jewish. Her father is a Midianite priest, a priest of the true God. She worships the true God, as does her father-in-law Jethro, but they were not Jews. They had become associated with the Jewish faith and the Jewish religion through some other means. And so Moses, in a sense, had married out of his culture. He hadn't married out of his religion, because she was a worshiper of the true God, but he'd married out of his culture. And part of Jewish culture, handed down from Abraham to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob, Jacob to his descendants, and Moses would have been well aware, was the rite of circumcision. That was a cultural thing associated with with Abraham's trying to fulfill God's promise for himself, to try and do for God what God said he would do for him. When he took Hagar to fulfill God's covenant promise, God said, that's not how it's going to work. Snip, 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 and you'll have a continual reminder that it's not by might or by strength or by your masculinity, it's by what I say. You will be a wounded man a wounded old man with a barren wife, and I will still keep my promise to you. And this this symbol of the cutting away of the flesh became part and parcel of the Jewish culture. But this wasn't part of Jethro's culture, and it wasn't part of Zipporah's culture, and this is key. Moses knew good and well that he should have circumcised his youngest, but he wanted to avoid conflict in the home. And so he capitulated, and he acquiesced, to the preferences of his wife. Verse 25. Zipporah took a flint knife. This is remarkable. And cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at his feet. This is not happy times. This isn't pleasant family dinner table conversation. This is like, all right, you want to cut him? I'll do it myself. What? And picks up that gnarly little piece of flesh and chucks it at moses this is weird stuff that's happening in the are you listening to this this is weird this is the kind of stories that are in the bible right it's a human book it's a real book it's an actual book where there's actual conflict and actual struggle and families actually wrestle with obedience to god and this remarkable thing happens clearly as you unpack what's taking place here. look at the rest of it here She says to him, you're a bloody man. How would you want to cut a child? You're a bloody man. This was not her custom. This was something that was repulsive to her. It's something that she had persuaded Moses. That's your custom, Moses, but this isn't my custom. And Moses went along with it. That's the key. Moses went along with it. So the Lord left him alone. At that time, she said, you're a bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. What a funny little story. Here's Moses, man. He's thrown his staff down. He's picked it up. He's, we didn't talk about this, but he put his hand here. It became leprous. He put it back out. It went away. He poured some water on the ground. It became blood. But he has all of these tools in his belt, and he's going to go and meet with Pharaoh. He's going to go stand in front of the great monarch of the then known world, and, and I hope you'll hear this point here. I hope you'll hear this point, that Moses was willing to face Pharaoh, but not his wife, Yes, sir. That's what the text says. He'll go stand before Pharaoh. And I'll tell you right now, man, I might get myself into a little trouble, but you know I'm not unwilling to do that. There are men in this room that will conquer big projects, giant projects, million-dollar projects, that will build homes, that will build houses, that will, that will take on great enterprises. There are, there are men here who will do great things in their professional life, but I tell you, they're not Men in the homes as they should be. It's one thing to face Pharaoh. Because you don't have to sleep with Pharaoh. It's a whole different thing to be a man where it counts the most. And that's in your family. Now you think I'm reading too much into this. Look at this. Patriarchs and prophets. On the way from Midian, Moses received a startling and terrible warning of the Lord's displeasure. That's where it says he was about to kill him. An angel appeared to him in a threatening manner as if he would immediately destroy him. Moses remembered that he had disregarded one of God's requirements. Why? Did he forget? Was it like a dentist appointment? No, 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 no. Look at this. Yielding to the persuasion of his wife. Now, to be crystal clear what we're saying and what we're not saying, this, this door swings both ways. This can be a godly woman yielding to the persuasion of her obstinate husband. This isn't just about husbands and wives. This is about wives and husbands, and it's about children. This is about, in our own home, living for God and not capitulating to the standards of somebody else that's introducing compromise, even somebody who's very near and very dear to you, like the person you sleep with. If your spouse gossips, That's not license for you to gossip. If your spouse wants to to cut a few corners in her or his religious experience, that's not permission for you to cut a few corners in your religious experience. You see, many of us will take on giant enterprises in our professional life, right? We'll do great big things, but when it comes to having those hard, sometimes difficult, sometimes tension-filled conversations in the home, we'll shy away. We're like Moses. We're ready to face the Pharaoh, but we don't want to deal with our own homes, Because of the persuasion of his wife, he had neglected to perform the rite of circumcision upon their youngest son. Notice that I've bolded that word, neglected. He didn't reject it, he neglected it. And this is what often happens in Christian homes. It's not that one member of the family s- suddenly turns up, the wife suddenly turns up, or the husband suddenly turns up and says, We're not doing that anymore. No, there's an atmosphere that's created where one of the members of the family is starting to slip and starting to slide. And You just go along. You don't reject it. You neglect it. You just don't pay attention to it. You think that it'll go away. Moses thought that this whole circumcision thing would go away. And here he is, ready to march in to stand in the very courtroom of the monarch of the universe, but he's unwilling to have the hard conversation with his own wife. How many of us are like this? Ready to be disciples. Ready to be victors. Ready to be evangelists. Ready to be ministers. Ready to serve. In every place, in any place, except our home. You see, the story here, this story here is a remarkable story. The story here says it's not just about facing the pharaohs of your life, it's about living in godly harmony with those that are closest to you. It's about having a home that says, you know what, together as a team, one man, one woman, one flesh, we're going to serve God. I'm not going to be greater than you. I'm not going to be less than you. I'm not going to... And to hold one another accountable. If you begin to see your partner slip, your response is not to slip along with them. It's to say, hey, wait a minute, sweetheart. Wait, wait a minute. We're a godly home. I've seen too many homes, and I tell you, it's embarrassing to say this. I see too many homes where the men won't be the, the priest of the home. And so it's, it's always the mom who's gathering the kids for worship. It's the mom who's gathering the kids for prayer. And I tell you, that sends a signal, and it's not even a subtle one to the children. It sends a signal, men, that worship and religion and godliness aren't manly, that these are feminine traits. Sixty percent of Seventh-day Adventists are women. Sixty percent of Seventh-day Adventists are women. Forty percent of Seventh-day Adventists are men, and it's only slightly different in the larger Christian community. Because I think in too many ways, in various ways, subtle and not so subtle, we have communicated, men, that, that religion is largely Feminine. We've lost that that masculinity, that sense that there is a leader, there is somebody to stand, there is somebody to, to gather the family, for the man to place his hands on his children and say, I love you, boy, I love you, my daughter, I love you, my son. Let me pray with you and for you. Let's read from God's word. Let's talk about the big things in life instead of just playing games and dinking around and doing all the stuff that we do. Let's gather our families together. It doesn't have to be for hours. You don't have to turn your home into a monastery. But in too many homes, it's the mom. Come on, boys, let's have worship. Come on, boys, let's pray. Come on, boys, let's... And the man's off doing God knows what? Surfing the internet. Who knows? Playing clash of clans. Listen to me, you guys. The story is right in Scripture. The story is right there in the text about a man who is willing to face Pharaoh but wouldn't have the hard conversations in his own home. I'm going to land this... not going to say... I'm going to land this sermon... Moses has already told us several times about men that have been led around by the nose by women. Adam was led to eat by Eve. Abraham was led by Sarah to take Hagar. Lot was led by his wife to linger in Sodom. Jacob was led by Rebekah to deceive his father. And Moses was led by Zipporah to disobedience. This is a consistent theme. And I'll tell you, this is, the reason is not because women are bad. It has nothing to do with that. But if men refuse to be men in their homes, and I've already said this, and I'm gonna bring it back to the very same place I did the last sermon I preached in this church about six weeks ago. When fathers refuse to be godly spirit-led leaders of their home, instability is the sure result. And often mothers will stand in that place. Men are not called to lord it over their families, but to graciously, godly, and, and, and in, a, in a Christian way to lead that home. Not to be the big boss like the early Moses flexing your muscles and going to go in and take care of business. No, to lead like Jesus would lead. To lead like a shepherd would lead. To lead with humility. To lead with service. To lead with kindness. I tell you, one of the things I want to see in the Cliff Church and in my own life is a revival of masculine religion. Of, of godliness in the home. Of both men and women. Masculinity, masculinity and femininity coming together in that beautiful Commingling of royalty and holiness that only a man and a woman can do. By the way, I highly advise the series, the beautiful series that Robin Beck Stoico and David and uh, uh, Karen North are doing, Love and Respect. We're going to just run that series over and over and over again in this church because it teaches this beautiful complementary relationship between femininity and masculinity and we work together to guide our family. I want to say this. What's happening in your home? If your children have un- limited access to the internet in your home, your teenage children, I think you're making a huge mistake. I'm going to say that publicly. I make no apologies for that. Study after study has consistently shown that if your children can get on the... I'm talking your teenage children. If they can get on the internet at any time on their various devices, whether their phone or their iPad or their computer or whatever, I tell you, you are making a tremendous mistake. It's not like saying that the children are sitting in a library and they're going to wander over into the, you know, inappropriate section. No, it's like your children sitting in a strip club and having their nose in the Bible and saying, don't look up. It's right there. It's right there. And statistically, I'm telling you, statistically, the number of, of boys and girls, teenage boys, especially boys, but girls as well, that are using all kinds of illegitimate things on the internet is like 80% of teenage boys. So your assumption should not be, it's everybody but my son. It's everybody but my daughter. Your assumption should be that you need to reach out to your children and to speak openly to them. And I'm telling you, to just open up your house to anything and everything. Oh yeah, you got the internet. You can get on there. Free passwords. You know what? We trust our children. Hey look, you should trust your children. I'm a big proponent in trusting your children, but, but are you trusting them and guiding them giving them opportunity, or are you inviting s- things into your own home unwittingly that you don't know about? Do you know all the games that your children play? Are they, kill- are they blowing one another up? Is there, are they, is there blood splattering on the screen? Or are they viewing sensual things that they shouldn't be viewing that are going to poison their minds for the rest of their lives? And many of you are sitting there thinking, no, 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 my kids will get out of it. This isn't the world you grew up in. We didn't grow up in this world. We didn't grow up in the I-everything world. Right? Those of us that are 30 and older, we grew up in a very different world. Your children are growing up in a world that is radically unlike. And I know that you know this, but I'm asking you to take it to heart. Believe that in your own home, there needs to be godly leadership, both from the men and from the women. There needs to be communication. There needs to be openness. There needs to be transparency. There needs to be trust. There needs to be vulnerability. Don't ride off to face the pharaohs of your life and be unwilling to be the man or the woman in your own home. There are homes where this principle of love is carried out, where God is worshipped and true love reigns. From these homes, morning and evening prayer ascends to God as sweet incense. His mercies, mercies, and blessings descend upon the family like morning dew. A well-ordered Christian household is a powerful argument in favor of the reality of the Christian religion. All can see that there is an influence at work in the family that affects the children. All can see that the God Of Abraham is with them. I want to close by asking this simple question. What is in your hand and what is in your home? Whatever's in your hand, I invite you to throw it down so that you can take it back up again. Put it down. Give your life to God so that you can take it up and it can truly be yours. You and God make a majority. With you and God, there's nothing that you cannot accomplish. And then I want to ask you the question, what's in your home? Are there influences in your home? Are there tensions in your home? Are there struggles in your home that you as a godly mother, you as a godly wife, you as a godly husband, you as a godly father are unwilling to face? It's easier to face the contractors of the world. It's easier to face the businessmen of the world. It's easier to face the great vicissitudes of life out there. But what about the home? I'm pleading with you on behalf of Jesus. Don't be like Moses in this regard. Ready to ride off into the sunset to face the mighty Pharaoh, but unwilling to have the difficult, sometimes tension-filled conversations in your own home because you're concerned about a child, you're concerned about a son, you're concerned about your wife, you're concerned about your husband, you're concerned about a daughter, reach out in love with empathy, with kindness, and your whole family can be shepherded into the flock of God. What's in your hand? And what's in your home? Father in heaven, Moses is a great example to us in so many things, but in others, not so much. And Father, today we have come face to face with a very ordinary man. A man who didn't become extraordinary until he realized that he wasn't. A man who was just sure he could accomplish everything with his own power, his own biceps, his own fists, his own intellect. And yet there was that process, that 40-year process of humility being brought into the school of Christ, into the discipline of shepherding. Father, none of us in this room are shepherds. Very few of us, or perhaps none of us in this room, have wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. But Father, you are calling us to be like Moses in meekness, in self-distrust, in humility, in willingness. But Father, even then, even then, Moses' own meekness backfired on him, and he was unwilling to face the conflict and the difficulty and the tension in his own home. Father, I pray for the homes here. I know there are dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of godly homes, but, Father, even godly homes can be improved. Even godly homes can become better still. And, Father, I want to pray publicly that you will protect our children. We live in a sensual, secular, hostile world, a world that is bound and determined to ruin children and a world in which that ruin is closer than it's ever been before, just at our fingertips. And so, Father, I claim the great promise of Isaiah chapter 49. I will contend with him that contends with you, and I will save your children. Father, save us, save our children, and call us out of this strange land that is not our home. Call us into a land flowing with milk and honey, a place of love, of happiness, of communion and community, a place with you. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let all of God's children say, Amen. Amen.